The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Partially Examined Life Precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Hi, this is Wes Alwyn talking about George Barclay's Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonous for Partially Examined Life, Episode 89. Barclay was an Irish bishop born in the 17th century and active in the 18th century. In his mid-20s, he wrote a number of books, including a treatise on vision and then a systematic philosophical treatise, and then the dialogue that I'm going to be summarizing. Now, you've probably heard, if you have a, even a passing familiarity with philosophy, of Barclay's theory because it's, it sounds really strange. And the idea is that there is no matter in the world, that the world is composed entirely of ideas. Matter, by the way, just means anything non-mental. So you, you may have also heard the slogan, to be is to be perceived, and that's, that's precisely what Barclay is going to argue. For something to exist is for it to be an idea in a mind. So let's look at some background to get an idea of what's motivating Barclay's theory, because like other seemingly crazy theories, and then another one um, which is related to Barclays is Leibniz. You can listen to our episode on Leibniz's monadology. The theory sounds strange, but its strangeness is a product of an attempt to deal with a very fundamental philosophical problem. And by studying these theories and then bracketing out whether or not you think they're plausible, they highlight um, in a really useful way what these problems are. Barclays' theory in particular is a metaphysical solution to an epistemological problem. What does that mean? The epistemological problem is that the requirements of objectivity and knowability seem to conflict. Objectivity requires that the world be independent of our minds, while knowability implies dependence. So for objects to be mind-independent, it means that they are what they are regardless of my wishes or whims and regardless of whether or not I'm present to them. So if I'm in a room and there's a table in my field of perception and I leave the room, my, my leaving the room doesn't mean that the table has disappeared, even though the table has disappeared from my perceptual awareness. That's mind independence, uh, and that's the grounds for objectivity. So mind independence here is the table continuing to exist even when I leave. And likewise, you know, when it comes to my will or my wishes, the table isn't going to change because of that. In other words, it's not going to turn into a piece of cake just because I'm hungry, although it may do that in a dream. So a dream is a good counterpoint to all of this. Our uh, desires in dreams do affect the content of our awareness in a way that they don't when we're awake. So that's another way of getting at this concept of mind independence and objectivity. On the other hand, there's a strong case to be made for mind dependence. And what I mean by that 
is that if the world were completely independent of our minds, it would be hard to see how we could know anything about them. To get at that idea, you simply have to think about the scientific accounts of perception that were emerging at the time that Barclay and other early modern philosophers were writing. And of course, Barclay himself developed his own theory of vision. So think about what happens when we see something. Um, We know through high school science, at least, about the fact that vision involves light reflecting off objects and entering our eyes and then stimulating the optic nerve and then producing brain activity. So this picture makes our knowledge of the world seem relational. We interact with the world in a certain way, and when we know the world, we know it via this interaction. And specifically, we know the world via our own ideas or perceptions or brain activity. And those are things which seem to be firmly within the mind or the brain. In other words, the dependence part of this story involves the fact that we seem to be able to know the world only through our own perceptions, our ideas, only through something that, um, on this account, must be solely within our own minds. But then, of course, it's hard to see how objects that are outside of us that are purely non-mental could be objects of knowledge, since our knowledge involves something that seems purely mental. And that's the puzzle that not just Barclay, but many philosophers before him had been trying to cope with. And the traditional solution, one that you see in Plato and Aristotle, is to say that there must be something about the world which is mind-like. In other words, it can't be the case that you simply have a subject and object that are interacting in some way, but radically separate. They must have some common ground. And that common ground, Plato and Aristotle thought, had something to do with what they called form. Form is a way of saying that there's something mind-like in the world that makes it knowable. It's not that the things out there have minds, but they have something like it and something susceptible to being known by minds. So the two arenas must overlap in some fundamental way. So forms are a way of accounting for an ingredient of the world that makes it noble by making it mind-like. And like the mind, form is not itself a material thing. That's not something that's entirely foreign to our contemporary ears. We're used to think of thinking of the world's being built up out of fundamental material components that are organized and systematically affecting each other in various ways. So, for instance, fundamental particles. But that organization is not itself a material thing. When we think about physics, we talk about the behavior of particles via mathematics. And, of course, we use mathematics in all the other sciences extensively. And that formalization, to talk about the world mathematically, is not to say that mathematical entities are material entities, but we do have to believe that there's some grounding that makes our use of mathematics legitimate. Berkeley's not going to like these traditional theories in which there's common ground between the mental and non-mental, because It relies on a concept that he rejects, and that's the concept of abstract entities. Barclay believes that the only things that exist are particulars, and particular sensible things, particular perceivable things. 
So despite the fact that we engage in mathematical abstractions or we might want to talk about, say, the color red in general, that doesn't mean that there's an idea red as an entity existing somewhere. And that doesn't mean that those mathematical abstractions correspond to some entity out there in the world. They might be true. They might be true ways of talking about our experience of things. But Barclay rejects the notion that there are abstract entities. So there are a few reasons why Barclay rejects abstract entities, and we've, we've just mentioned the fact that he thinks they're only particular things in the world. But also he, he asks us to try and frame an abstract idea. And if you try and do that, and you can refer back to our later Wittgenstein episode as well, by the way, you'll realize that our concepts aren't really imagistic, or they are not themselves sensory. When we have a concept of something, it's not itself an image. And Berkeley will say it's, in fact, it's just a word. And there's actually something to that. So a concept, of course, can stand over many different particular instances with many different sensory components. And you can't just pick out one sensory component and say, there, you have the concept. It has to be something which ranges over many things, and therefore it's abstract and can itself have any specific sensory content. And this is something, because Berkeley is a kind of a radical empiricist, that he rejects. So there's an irony here that Berkeley is attuned to, which is that on the traditional accounts, the part of the reality that's supposed to be minded or mind-like and therefore intelligible to us is something that is itself not perceivable. So we can perceive red things, but we could never perceive the idea red, for instance. We can never perceive forms per se. Although on the Aristotelian account, that's that's a little more tricky. And because of that, under those accounts, there's no guarantee that our immediate sensory experiences correspond to anything in the real world at all. Ultimate reality turns out not to be something that we have sensory experience of. It turns out to be these non-sensible forms. And that's something Barclay doesn't like. So what Barclay wants to do is he wants to wriggle out of such problems by ridding us of the distinction between mind and matter entirely. That's a kind of radical solution to the problem. But of course, if it can work, it gets rid of a whole slew of problems concerning the relationship between the mental and the non-mental. Okay, so how does how does Barclay do that? Well, I should pause here to say that while Barclay's dialogues occur between two characters, uh, Philonous representing the immaterialist position and Hylas representing the materialist position, and in fact their names are suggestive of that, I am for the most part not going to mention these characters and their testy exchanges. I'm going to give a very condensed distillation of the argument that Barclay is trying to make through them. So let's look at how Barclay argues for immaterialism. His first step is to identify sensible things with only those things we experience immediately with the senses, which means they're identified with combinations of sensible qualities. So for instance, if I'm perceiving an apple, what I'm really perceiving is a series of perceptions of, say, a something that's round and red and smooth, but as I turn it, I get a, um, a somewhat different perception, and I get sequences of these perceptions, or what Barclay will call ideas, over time. Now, obviously, I don't think to myself, look, here are 3,000 objects that are all Apple-like. Um, I collect all those different perceptions that I'm having within my visual field and over time, and I see a systematic relationship between them, and I infer that there's one thing there, the apple. 
Now, the apple itself is something it's important to note that is inferred. So even when I'm looking at the front of the apple, I'm inferring the existence of the back of the apple, and I'm inferring all sorts of possible perceptions with regard to the apple. So I've inferred this unitary apple object that seems to combine all the different sensory qualities. And this thing, this unitary object, is not something for Barclay that we directly perceive, but it's itself an abstraction, um, something that we get at by intellect or what he calls a reason. So this, this distinction that we've just made between the things we infer, which are sometimes abstractions, and the things that we directly and immediately perceive is important to Barclay, and I've hinted at that in the, uh, in, in the introduction, and we'll see why as we continue. Um, but once he's made this distinction, he's got to do two things to persuade us of his immaterialism. First, he's got to argue that the sensible qualities of things to which we have immediate access in our perception are entirely in our minds, which is to say that they're ideas and nothing else. The second thing he has to do is argue that these ideas cannot coherently be said to have some relation to a non-mental reality, whether of correspondence, inherence, causality, or something else. Because we might agree with him that we have immediate access to the sensible qualities of things, and these turn out to be entirely ideas in our minds. But we might say, well, but yes, but our inference, say, to that unitary Apple object, that's a real thing out there. And we can infer it because it's causing our perceptions. That's a very natural sort of inference. So Barclay is going to have to do some work to argue against that. And that and causality is just one of the possible relations between a non-mental reality and the ideas to which we have access. So it's important to keep in mind those two steps because someone who's not an idealist, someone who's a materialist, might accept that first conclusion, might accept that all we have immediate access to is ideas in our own minds. And so, for instance, Descartes comes to mind. He's a materialist, but he would agree with that first step. So what Barclay will end up doing is he's going to argue against explaining this orderly occurrence of our sensations, the things that lead us to these inferences. He wants us to avoid reifying the generalizations that we make about those sensations. So, for instance, again, he wants us to avoid claiming the unity of a varied series of Apple sensations as explained by a single material substance outside of us, one of that can be inferred by the intellect but not itself sensed. Okay, so the first step, to argue that our immediate sensory perceptions are only in our minds, Barclay will recount a number of uh, traditional skeptical arguments concerning sensation. Many of these come from a text by an ancient skeptic called Sextus Empiricus, and this text had actually been recently discovered during the time of Descartes and had a great effect on early modern philosophy. It's sort of along with science and these theories of people thinking about perception in a scientific way, it had a huge effect on early modern philosophy because it confronted it with this idea of our experience of the world being mediated, this idea that there is a huge barrier between us and the world, and something very problematic for our knowledge of the world. So many of these skeptical arguments turn on the perspectival nature of our perceptions. So for instance, the color of something, it might, might change with distance or lighting or magnification, or we could imagine that it would change if we had the eyes of other animals or if we were much smaller relative to our objects of perception. These sort of skeptical arguments are ways of getting us to see that color is not something itself out there. It's something that must be purely mental, otherwise it wouldn't change. The objects themselves can't change simply because we're changing our perspective to them, but that's something that color does. 
there are some other arguments here involving heat and pain, and we'll we'll discuss that further in the podcast. So now we might grant these points and agree that we have immediate access only to our own ideas, but we might claim that we have an indirect access to some non-mental reality that grounds these ideas, and they could ground them by a number of different relationships, and I've counted eight at least, and Barclay goes through these exhaustively. And actually, we can stop here to note that there's one thing about these dialogues that you have to respect is the exhaustive entertaining of objections and different possibilities, and which leads to a very, very tight argument. So some of these relations, so we might say there's some sort of undefined vague correlation or correspondence. So for instance, we might say that even though heat is something that's just in our heads, the, the experience of something being hot is not out there, that's just heat as perceived. And there might be a heat in itself that we could talk about that's out there and that sort of correlates to heat as perceived. The second relation is causality. We might say that, that even though sound and color is something in our heads, the real sounds and colors are the pulses of air or the electromagnetic waves, the light that interact with our ears and eyes to produce sounds and colors as we perceive them. The third relation, we can, we can get even more sophisticated with causal theory and talk about something called primary and secondary qualities, uh, something that made, was made famous by Locke. Now, this is the idea that, uh, and again, this is influenced by the development of modern science, um, this is the idea that some of the sensible qualities to which we have access, like extension or solidity or motion, are quote-unquote primary, and the, they are non-mental entities that, we, that are really out there in the world, but they're also something of which we have sens sensible qualities. And then there are secondary qualities, such as color and so on, that are only in the mind. So... Again, here we can give an account of how electromagnetic radiation, which we can describe in purely spatiotemporal terms and in terms of waves and matter and so on, without reference to red and blue, because that wouldn't make any sense at that level, will affect our eyes in such a way that we get ideas of red and blue. But of course, red and blue aren't out there. It's just electromag electromagnetic radiation that's out there. And then there's inherence. This is the fourth relation I, I counted. Perhaps it's the case that the qualities, as we perceive them, inhere in matter. So even though color is something that we have as an idea in our heads, there's some sense in which it inheres in some non-mental material substance outside of us. And then there's something I'm going to call action, and that's the idea that our sensations amount to a purely mental act amounts to an act of sensing that's purely mental, but can somehow take as an object something that's entirely non-mental. And then there's support. Uh, matter might serve as a substratum to sensible qualities. There's what I'll call combination. Perhaps mental ideas, when taken as a combined whole, constitute a non-mental material object. And then there's representation, which we might say our ideas are something like pictures of or similar to some non-mental reality. So Barclay is going to go through and he's going to debunk uh, all of these possible relationships. And he's going to deploy three basic categories of objection to these proposed relations. The first one is that some of these relations ask us to imagine that ideas are somehow present in non-mental entities when ideas can only be present in minds. So the concept, for instance, of inherence and the substratum, they don't make sense to Barclay because... They require that ideas somehow be in non-mental things when ideas can only be in minds. And we'll talk about that more on the podcast. The second objection is 
that some of the relations require that we posit entities and relations of which we cannot have any knowledge, since all we have immediate access to our own ideas. So, for example, heat in itself is not something we could experience with the senses. All we can experience is heat as perceived. So why posit something of which we can have no knowledge? And with a substratum, we'd have to say how it, you know, what is the relationship between a substratum and then sensible qualities? We might say it's spread out underneath the qualities, but then we're thinking of a substratum as having extension when that's just another, it's just another idea in our head. Representation fails because it's unclear how ideas in the mind could be similar to anything that's non-mental or how a multitude of fleeting sensory qualities could be similar to some single unchanging nonsensible object. So for, for instance, imagine saying that each of my momentary perspectival takes on an apple were somehow similar to the real but unseen apple. That's really hard to get a grasp of since the, the real apple is not something I can have any experience of. So how can it be similar to my experiences? And of course, you know, I would have no way of comparing my idea, which is a mental thing, to some non-mental thing of which I can have no idea by, by definition. And Barclay will go on to, to critique the representational theory by thinking more about what it would mean for ideas to be pictures of the world. And some of you will think here about Wittgenstein a little bit. But what he's going to say is that pictures are inferential links between sensory qualities and sensory memories. So if I have a picture of Caesar and I've been taught about Caesar in the past, we get these inferential links. I can A picture of Caesar can evoke Caesar in my head because of my past experiences with being taught about Caesar and shown pictures of Caesar and so on. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't, it's not as if the picture of Caesar invokes an inferential relationship between that sensible picture and then some unknowable, non-sensible thing that I've never experienced and have no memory of. Now, the strongest sorts of relationships involve causality. So, the simpler sort of causal theory, where we just say that the real sounds are pulses of air, the real colors are the motion of light, would lead to the sorts of paradoxes where we say real sounds can't be heard because they're just the motion of the air, and that's not something that is itself heard. Real colors can't be seen because they're just the motion of light. And the motion of light is it's not, not itself something visible. And that, to Barclay, is absurd. So we can make this theory more interesting through the as I mentioned, through the use of primary and secondary qualities, where, again, primary qualities are sensible, yet also non-mental and out there. But for Barclay, primary qualities suffer from the same problem as secondary qualities. So you can do make all the same skeptical arguments with regard to spatial dimensions as you did with color. They change depending on our perspective and distance and so on. And you don't make things better by giving mathematical treatments to space and extension, or by abstracting from particular cases of extendedness. Because again, Barclay rejects abstractions. So they don't correspond to anything that exists. The only things that exist are particulars. And if you want to get at one of the linchpins of Barclay's argument and a possible weakness, I think it's this rejection of abstractions. And finally, there's a moment in these dialogues when we get Barclay's famous reflection on whether or not we can imagine a combination of sensible qualities such as a tree existing in total isolation from any perceiving subject. In this case, no, we can't imagine a tree existing in isolation from all observers because the very fact of our imagining it introduces ourselves into the scene 
as observers. So the first dialogue, we got reasons for immaterialism. The second dialogue is going to explain to us how mind independence will work, how there can be such a thing as objectivity if there's no non-mental substance in the world, if all there are are ideas in our heads. Well, it will turn out there's not just ideas in our heads, and we can continue to say that when I leave the room and there's no other perceiver, the table still continues to, to exist, or strictly speaking, various ideas that can, could be combined, thought of as a table. And that's because there's a, for Barclay, a perceiver who's always there and always perceiving, and that perceiver is God. So on Barclay's account, God will serve the same sort of grounding role that matter does in other accounts. It's just that Barclay thinks that God can do a better job of grounding the objective existence of the world because God is a spirit with a mind, and the world must consist of entirely of ideas if we're to do away with the problem of the mental knowing the non-mental. Now, one of the things to think about here is that, as strange as Barclay's theory is, it doesn't prevent us from talking about atoms and talking about matter in the usual way with science. Um, ultimately, though, he's going to think that the kinds of regularities that we're getting at in science are these regular connections between our sensory perceptions and that regularity comes directly from the will of God. So in some sense, we think of ideas as in God's mind, whether or not we're there to have those ideas, and, that it, and then at different times, we some of those ideas in God's mind will be available to, to us or not. But it's not just a random barrage of ideas. It's not a sound and fury. There's an orderliness to things. And that orderliness that we used to attribute to matter would be attributed, if we accept Barclay's account, to God's will, the way in which he um, wills us to perceive things at any, at any given time. That leads to the bizarre consequence that our usual way of talking about objects affecting our brain is ruled out. And this is another I think, weakness in, in Barclay's account. Because for Barclay, the brain is just another idea. And so, which doesn't mean we can't do neuroscience, because again, we're just delving into regular relationships between ideas. But it does mean that when we do neuroscience and we think about these regular relations between brain states and our subjective states, that our usual way of speaking as if objects are affecting the brain and then causing ideas is not legitimate because ideas themselves are not these active things that can affect each other. We can't have, you know, a one idea out there in the world somehow affecting the brain idea and then producing another idea. You see how strange that account would get. They're just ideas directly in the mind caused by the, the will of God, which would lead us to wonder why would God will us to have these regular relationships between neural events and um, the world in such a way as to suggest something non-mental interacting with something mental. It's something Barclay doesn't address. But he does invoke the superiority of his account to the usual explanation in that it avoids the mind-body problem. And I think that really actually is an advantage. In the third dialogue, we get a <laughs> we find that Hylas has become a skeptic. He's convinced now by Philonous's arguments, and he's now a skeptic in the sense that he believes that because we can know only our own ideas, we can know nothing of the world. So what he's forgotten is that the ideas are just are the world. 
And uh, so we don't need to posit these unknown beings out there beyond our own ideas. The ideas just are the world and they're grounded. They can be made objective by God. They're ordered according to the laws of nature, which flow from God's volition. Now, you might wonder how, how it is we could successfully have an idea of God since God is not a perceivable thing and we can have no usual perceptual ideas of God. And here, Barclay has to admit that we can have knowledge of certain things that are non-perceptual. Now, you might think that that's a weakness because, of course, the unknowability of a non-mental stuff, matter, was one of the reasons why we wanted to get rid of it. But Barclay's going to claim that actually we do have a unique sort of knowledge of God because we have a knowledge of spirits in general. And we have that knowledge because we're intimately acquainted with ourselves reflectively as spirits. So there's an advantage there over the non-mental stuff because we don't have that same intimate relationship with it. So even though spirits are not themselves perceivable things of which we can have perception ideas, can intuit in some sense through reflection. And of course, we can get the idea of God, the great infinite spirit from extrapolating from our own experience as spirits. Although experience isn't exactly a legitimate word there. I think again, intuition. There's some other objections here that, that Hylas will we'll get into, including, for instance, the problem of evil and how it is we can do science. I've discussed a little bit about science already, but ultimately we'll end up with what Barclay sees as the advantages of immaterialism, which is that, um, and this is something I haven't talked about, Barclay sees it as a proof of God. He thinks that the fact that all we have access to are our own ideas and they can't be explained by anything else than God means God certainly exists. You can compare this to Descartes' account in the Meditations, where he starts out with access only to his own ideas and then proves God as the necessary cause of a certain kind of idea. So Barclays is a more general variation on that theme. The other advantage uh, for Barclays is that it solves certain metaphysical problems arising in philosophy and the sciences. Again, including the mind-body problem, including how one body moves another, and Finally, there's a moral component to this, which is that knowing that <laughs> not only is God watching everything, but God's watching is everything in some sense, and that we're more likely to be good, uh, moral, knowing that. So to conclude, this is a very tight argument, and it's probably not as easy to escape Barclay's conclusions as you might think on first blush. And that's one of the reasons why it's such a compelling thing to read. But if you're looking for weaknesses and pathways into a different sort of way of thinking, I think you have to think about this very Cartesian starting point that Barclay begins with, where we have access only to our own ideas and the way in which we get stuck there because we're not allowed to have abstract entities. An absence of abstract entities leaves us stranded on this immaterial island, so to speak. All right, so on that note, I will sign out, and I hope this brief introduction encourages you to, to actually read the dialogues, um, because they're one of the funner things you'll um, read in the history of philosophy, and then uh, join us for our next episode of the Partially Examined Life, episode 89 on Barclay's Three Dialogues.